Star Wars 7x7 episode 2938. We're continuing our series of final reviews of the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. Today we're looking at Obi-Wan himself, where he was at the start of the series, where he ended up, and how he got there. Punch it! Hey Rebel Rouser, I'm Alan Voivod and this is Star Wars 7x7, your daily dose of Star Wars joy. And thank you so much for joining me for it. So I guess I'd be remiss if I didn't also say <laughs> that Ewan McGregor did a fabulous job returning to the role of Obi-Wan Kenobi. I had a lot of praise for Moses Ingram the other day and Hayden Christensen yesterday. And actually, I don't think I even mentioned like the moments of Hayden as a still intact Vader coming into the Jedi Temple and appearing in the weird flashbacks on Mapuzo for Obi-Wan. Like, those were also awesome. Ewan McGregor, terrific job bridging the gap between the end of Revenge of the Sith and the beginning of A New Hope and that particular experience of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, pitch perfect. Loved it. Really, like, particularly the moment when he tells Owen, you know, the boy must be trained. Like, the way that he delivers that, you can hear him straddling the line between Revenge of the Sith Obi and A New Hope Obi. It's really just beautifully executed. All right, so yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's that part. So let's talk about Obi-Wan specifically. The first thing I want to flag is that depending on your experience of Obi-Wan prior to entering the series, you actually look at him very differently. So if your experience is only the live action movies, then you're going to get a different situation because you basically know nothing about what happened in the 10 years between Revenge of the Sith and the Obi-Wan Kenobi series. If you are familiar with stuff that happened in the comics, for example, or you know things that we talked about here on the podcast in the run-up to the Obi-Wan Kenobi series, you know that he wasn't just sitting there for 10 years. Like he actually got up in Jabba the Hutt's business and messed with Tuscans and fought Chrysanthemum. Like he had a whole lot of stuff going on. So from a live action perspective, it looks like he's just been sitting there for 10 years, getting progressively more depressed and more frustrated and lonely with what's going on with Owen and Luke and having no contact with anyone really except just these random jobs that he gets to do to make enough to get by. With the full story though, maybe it's a little bit different. It's been a couple of years since the last time he got in a scrape as far as we know, as far as the entirety of the storytelling we have access to now says. And yes, things can happen over the course of a couple of years and maybe he had some additional issues with Owen and Beru maybe even. So yeah, although I feel like Beru is a little bit more sympathetic to Obi-Wan personally, but anyway, so yeah, his level of depression might not has might not be as deep necessarily if you're looking at it from the full canon storytelling perspective. But it still ain't great, that's for sure. And so the second thing I want to flag for you is that this series is essentially a perfect hero's journey for Obi-Wan Kenobi. So the hero's journey is that 12-step story structure that was more or less hinted at by Joseph Campbell in his works and then kind of codified by people examining it more carefully from a storytelling perspective. So the 12 
steps basically are first establishing an ordinary world, which we get Obi-Wan working on the sand whale and coming to and from work and whatnot, and that's it. And then there's a call to adventure. Something goes wrong. He gets a message saying that Leia's in trouble. He refuses the call. And there's even a mini refusal of the call earlier because somebody cheats a worker out of the money that he's supposed to be getting from the sand whale, the foreman of the job. And Obi-Wan looks at him and the guy's like, what, are you going to do anything? And Obi-Wan doesn't do anything. He refuses that call. And he refuses the call about Leia as well. So that's steps one through three. The ordinary world, the call to adventure, and the refusal of the call. Meeting of the mentor is basically Bail Organa. Like, he is in the mentor role in this particular situation and is able to convince Obi-Wan that Obi-Wan needs to do this and that it is in his interest and in the galaxy's interest to do this. So then we have the crossing of the threshold, which is basically Obi-Wan going to the spaceport and going off planet to say, yes, I'm going to go take care of this business. Then the sixth step is the tests, allies, and enemies step. And Obi-Wan has a series of things he has to overcome on Dayu and on Mapuzo. He meets people like Kamel Nanjiani's character or Indira Varma's character. He meets <laughs> with Reva and faces off with her directly, Reva, excuse me, and is also trying to avoid the other Inquisitors and deals with the kidnappers, right? So all that stuff happens. So then steps seven and eight are the approach to the inmost cave and the ordeal. And this basically maps up with episode four staring contest where they have to make plans to go to this cave, the Inquisitorious Fortress on Noor, and deal with all the enemies that are available in there and capture the elixir, which in this case, Leia represents the elixir. And that is step nine in the journey. Then step 10 is committing to the road back to the ordinary world. And this is Obi-Wan and the members of the path trying to escape from, uh, oh, Jabim, excuse me, with Leia. But unfortunately, Vader has other plans naturally. And so we have the resurrection situation, which is step 11 in the journey. And that's where Obi-Wan has his final trial with Vader and defeats him and has that cathartic moment, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. And then finally, step 12 is actually going back to the ordinary world, which is him returning to Tatooine and his duties of watching over Luke. So yes, pretty much beat by beat, a straight up hero's journey for Obi-Wan Kenobi in this series. And the knowledge that he came back with is enough to open up a new door for him, which is, of course, the ability to commune with Qui-Gon. And apparently it wasn't just about Qui-Gon learning how to walk the path of immortality. It was about Obi-Wan being able to see Qui-Gon on that path. Now, the third thing is that in the midst of all of this, Obi-Wan learns a couple of very important lessons. Number one is that Leia is just as important as Luke is. And he's been so focused on Luke, and I suppose you could forgive him to some degree for that because Luke is supposed to be his responsibility and he's just supposed to be surviving so that he can keep an eye on Luke and make sure that if he shows, when he shows, as in shows force abilities, that he can be trained. So Leia is not his problem, not his concern. Somebody else is supposed to be taking care of that. Although, from a Jedi perspective, like there's no Jedi around in hiding nearby or anything like that who, if Leia was the one to show Force abilities, was there to train her. And that's, you know, a rather difficult and challenging thing to consider just in the way the storytelling is. And I'm certain that if the fine folks at Lucasfilm wanted to figure out a way to have a Jedi nearby who would have been assigned to that, they could certainly build that into the storytelling somehow. But right now, that isn't the 
case. And so it does look like a bit of a, a neglect of Leia, although there is storytelling, like particularly in the From a Certain Point of View collection of short stories for The Empire Strikes Back, where Yoda's actually very excited at the possibility of training one of the twins, but it's Leia that he's actually excited about training. But the situation with Leia ultimately allows Obi-Wan to actually relax a bit about Luke because obviously little Leia has demonstrated some incredible capabilities even if she hasn't necessarily displayed force sensitivity just yet. He knows that whenever <laughs> things develop, like if things develop with Leia, she's going to be just fine because he has a great experience of her capabilities. He doesn't have any of that with Luke and so he's learn to kind of let go and let Luke be Luke and let Owen raise Luke the way that he's going to and just, you know, see what happens. So that's part of the letting go that I talked about in titling <laughs> chapter six, letting go. And then the other letting go happens with his final battle with Darth Vader, the notion that he was responsible for Anakin's fall to the dark side, and then by extension, the notion that he's responsible for the fall of the galaxy, the fall of the Republic in some fashion, and in some significant fashion, because Vader slash Anakin is kind of the linchpin to this whole thing, but really it wasn't, it wasn't him, it was Palpatine all along, and, you know, Obi-Wan took that on his shoulders, basically, is what it comes down to. So he gets a very personal moment of release with Anakin slash Vader, even though it's not necessarily the moment that he wants, it's the moment that he needs. And by extension, the guilt that he's carrying around, not just for Anakin, but for all the lives lost as a result of the fall of the Republic, all of that kind of falls away from Obi-Wan and that allows him to have sort of a renewed sense of purpose. Now that all being said, there is still kind of the sticky question of why didn't Obi-Wan kill Vader in that moment? And yes, I know plot armor, right? Like he can't be killed in that moment and that's fine, whatever. So really it's a matter of, we know he's not gonna kill him. Why does he decide not to kill him? And the only thing that really makes sense is that even though he's arrived at the conclusion that then my friend is truly dead and see you later, Darth, which I just took as like, Obi-Wan can't call him Vader because that would be acknowledging that there is another personality there, that Anakin truly is gone. Like it's one thing to say that my friend is truly dead, but to call him Vader is to take a whole nother step down that road and Obi-Wan doesn't seem to be prepared to take that step in this moment. And that's okay and fine. Like just, you know, too much shock and emotion and sadness over this whole situation. But whereas I think Obi-Wan was basically leaving Anakin to die on Mustafar and assuming that Anakin would die, he's definitely leaving him on this unnamed moon without the presumption that he's going to die there, that he is actually going to escape. So yeah, there has to be a reason why. And the only thing is that even though he says my friend is truly dead, he doesn't really believe that just yet. At least that's the conclusion that I've come to about this, but I'd love to hear from you about this. Why do you think Obi-Wan let Vader live? Again, you know, forget the plot armor business, like just we know he lets him live, so what was the decision in the moment that made him decide, nope, I gotta let him live? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Drop them wherever there's a comment section, like on YouTube in the comments, or at the blog post for this show's episode at sw7x7.com, or hit me up on Twitter, reply to one of the tweets that goes out about this podcast episode. That's at sw7x7podcast. 
And that right there is going to do it for this episode of the show. It just remains for me to say thank you so much for joining me for it. As always, and may the force be with you wherever in the world you may be. Is not endorsed or sponsored yet by Lucasfilm Limited, Disney, or 20th Century Fox, and is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names and pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks and/or copyrights of Lucasfilm Limited. Other respective trademark and copyright holders may the force be with them. All original content is copyright 2021 by Star Wars 7x7. We hope you love it.